Magic Without Fears, Hermetic Podcast. I'm your host, Frater R.C. For more and exclusive episodes, visit magicwithoutfears.com. Thank you for your support. I forgot how much I like this book, Magic White and Black, by Franz Hartman. So I've read through the next part today, and I decided I liked it too much to not share. So I'm going to share it as well as I did the introduction. Continuing then, onward to the ideal. Quote, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4.24 The highest desire any reasonable man can cherish, and the highest right he may possibly claim, is to become perfect, to know everything, to love all, and be known and beloved by all, to possess and command everything that exists. Such is a condition of being that, to a certain extent, may be felt intuitively, but whose possibility cannot be grasped by the intellect of mortal man. A foretaste of such a blissful condition may be experienced by a person who, even for a short period of time, is perfectly happy. He who is not oppressed by sorrow, not excited by selfish desires, and who is conscious of his own strength and liberty, feels as if he were the master of worlds and the king of creation. And in fact, during such moments, he is their ruler, as far as he himself is concerned, although his subjects may not seem to be aware of his existence. But when he awakes from his dream and looks through the windows of his senses into the exterior world, and begins to reason about his surroundings, his vision fades away. He beholds himself as a child of the earth, a mortal form bound with many chains to a speck of dust in the universe. On a ball of matter called a planet that floats in the infinity of space, the ideal world that perhaps a moment before appeared to him as a glorious reality may now seem to him the baseless fabric of a dream in which there is nothing real, and physical existence with all its imperfections is now to him only unquestionable reality, and its most perfect illusions the only things worthy of his attention. He sees himself surrounded by material forms, and he seeks to discover among these forms that which corresponds to his highest ideal. The highest desire of any mortal is to attain that which exists in himself as his highest ideal. A person without an ideal is unthinkable. To be conscious is to realize the existence of some ideal. To relinquish the ideal world would be death. A person without any desire would be useless in the economy of nature. A person having all his desires satisfied needs to live no longer, for life can be of no further use to him. Each man's true ideal should be his own spiritual self, his Christ or God. Man's semi-animal self is not the whole man. Man may be regarded as an invisible power or ray extending in a line from the spiritual sun to the earth. Only the lower end of that line is visible because it has evolved an organized material body by means of which the invisible ray draws strength from the earth below. If all the life 
and thought force evolved by the contact of the lower end of that line with matter are spent within the material plane, the higher spiritual self will gain nothing by it. And when death breaks the communication between the higher and lower self, the lower self will perish and the higher one will remain what it was before it evolved a mortal inhabitant of the material world. Man lives in two worlds, in his interior and in the exterior world. Each of these worlds exists under conditions peculiar to itself, and that world in which he lives is for the time being the most real to him. When he fully enters his interior world during deep sleep or in moments of perfect abstraction, the forms perceived in the exterior world fade away. But when he awakes into the exterior world, the forms seen in his interior state are forgotten or leave only their uncertain shadows on the sky. To live simultaneously in both worlds is only possible to him who succeeds in harmoniously blending his internal and external worlds into one. The so-called real seldom corresponds with the ideal. And often it happens that man, after many unsuccessful attempts to realize his ideals in the exterior world, returns to his interior world with disappointment and resolves to give up his search. But if he succeeds in the realization of his ideal, then arises for him a moment of happiness, during which time, as we know it, exists for him no more. The exterior world is then blended with his interior world. His consciousness is absorbed in the enjoyment of both, and yet he remains a man. Artists and poets may be familiar with such states. An inventor who sees his invention accepted, a soldier coming victorious out of the struggle for victory, a lover united with the object of their desire, forgets his own personality and is lost in the contemplation of his ideal. The ecstatic worshipper, seeing the Redeemer before him, floats in an ocean of rapture, and his consciousness is centered in the ideal that he himself has created out of his own mind, but which is as real to him as if it were a living form of flesh. Shakespeare's Juliet finds her mortal ideal realized in Romeo's youthful form, United with him, she forgets the rush of time, night disappears, and she is not conscious of it. The lark heralds the dawn, and she mistakes its song for the singing of the nightingale. Happiness measures no time and knows no danger. But Juliet's ideal is mortal and dies, and having lost her ideal, Juliet must die. And the immortal ideals of both become again united as they enter the immortal realm through the door of physical death. But as the sun rose too early for Juliet, so in all engagements of evanescent ideals that have been realized in the external world, happiness vanishes soon. An ideal that has been realized ceases to be an ideal. The ethereal forms of the interior world, if grasped, by the rude hand of mortals and embodied in matter, must die. To grasp an immortal ideal, man's mortal nature must die before he can grasp it. Low ideals may be killed, but their death calls similar ones into existence. From the blood of a vampire that has been slain, a swarm of vampires arises. 
A selfish desire fulfilled makes room for similar desires. A gratified passion is chased away by other similar passions. A sensual craving that has been stilled gives rise to new cravings. Earthly happiness is short-lived and often dies in disgust. The love of the immortal alone is immortal. Material acquisitions perish because forms are evanescent and die. Intellectual accomplishments vanish for the intellectual forces are subject to change. Desires and opinions change and memories fade away. He who clings to old memories clings to that which is dead. A child becomes a man, a man an old man, an old man a child. The playthings of childhood give way to intellectual playthings, but when the latter have served their purpose, they appear as useless as did the former. Only spiritual realities are everlasting and true. In the ever-revolving kaleidoscope of nature, the aspect of illusions continually changes its form. What is laughed at as a superstition by one century is often accepted as the basis of science for the next, and what appears as wisdom today may be looked upon as an absurdity in the great tomorrow. Nothing is permanent but the real ideal, the truth. But where can man find the truth? If he seeks deep enough in himself, he will find it revealed. Each man may know his own heart. He may send a ray of his intelligence into the depths of his soul and search its bottom. He may find it to be as infinitely deep as the sky above his head. He may find corals and pearls or watch the monsters of the deep. If his thought is steady and unwavering, he may enter the innermost sanctuary of his own temple and see the goddess unveiled. Not everyone can penetrate into such depths, because the thought is easily led astray. But the strong and persistent searcher will penetrate veil after veil until, at the innermost center, he discovers the germ of truth, which awakened to consciousness will grow into a sun that illuminates the whole of the interior world wherein everything is contained. Such an interior meditation and concentration of thought upon the germ of divinity which rests in the innermost center of the soul is the only true prayer. The adulation of an external form, whether living or dead, whether existing objectively or merely subjectively in the imagination, is useless and serves only to deceive ourselves. It is very easy to attend the external forms of external so-called worship, but the true worship of the living God within requires a great effort of will and a power of will, which few people are able to exercise, but which can be acquired by practice. It consists in continually guarding of the door of the sacred lodge, so that no illegitimate thoughts may enter the mind to disturb the holy assembly whose deliberations are presided over by the spirit of wisdom. How shall we know the truth? Truth, having awakened to consciousness, knows what it is. It is the God principle in man, which is infallible and cannot be misled by illusions. If the surface of the soul is not lashed by the storms of passions, if no selfish desire exists, to disturb its tranquility, if its waters are not darkened by reflections of the past, 
we will see the image of eternal truth mirrored in the deep. To know the truth in its fullness is to become alive and immortal. To lose the power of recognizing the truth is to perish in death. The voice of truth in a person that has not yet awakened to spiritual life is the still small voice that may be felt in the heart, listened to by the imperfect, as a half-conscious dreamer may listen to the ringing of bells in the distance. But in those that have become conscious of life, that have passed through the first resurrection of the Spirit in their own heart and received the baptism of the first initiation administered by themselves, the voice of the newborn ego has no uncertain sound, but becomes the powerful word of the Master. The awakened principle of truth is self-conscious and self-sufficient. It is the great spiritual sun that knows that it exists. It stands higher than the intellect and higher than science. It does not need to be corroborated by recognized authorities. It cares not for the opinions of others, and its decisions suffer no appeal. It knows neither doubt nor fear, but reposes in the tranquility of its own supreme majesty. It can neither be altered nor changed. It always was and ever remains the same, whether mortal man may perceive it or not. It may be compared to the light of the earthly sun that cannot be excluded from the world, but from which man may exclude himself. We may blind ourselves to the perception of the truth, but the truth itself is not thereby changed. It illuminates the minds of those who have awakened to immortal life. A small room requires a little flame, a large room a great light for its illumination, but in either room the light shines equally clear in each. In the same manner the light of truth shines into the hearts of the illuminated with equal clearness, but with a power differing according to their individual capacity. It will always be perfectly useless to attempt to describe self-knowledge to another. Only that which exists relatively to ourselves has a real existence for us. That of which we know nothing does not exist for us. No proof of the existence of light can be furnished to the blind. No proof of transcendental knowledge can be given to those whose capacity to know does not transcend the realm of external phenomena. There is nothing higher than truth and the acquisition of truth is therefore man's highest ideal. The highest ideal in the universe must be a universal ideal. The constitution of all men is built according to one universal law, and the highest ideal must be the same ideal to all, and attainable to all, and in its attainment all individuals become reunited into one. As long as a man does not recognize the highest ideal in the universe, the highest one which he is able to recognize will be the highest to him. But as long as there still exists a higher one than the one he perceives, the higher will unconsciously attract him, unless he persistingly repulses its attraction. Only the attainment of the highest ideal in the universe can give permanent happiness, for having attained the highest there is nothing left that could be possibly desired. As long as there is still a higher ideal for man, he will have aspirations to reach it, but having reached the highest, its attraction ceases. 
he becomes one with it and can desire nothing more. There must be a state of perfection which all may reach, and beyond which none can advance, until the universe as a whole advances beyond it. All men have the same right to reach the highest, but not all have the same power developed. Some may reach it soon, others may lag on the road, and perhaps the majority may fall and have to begin again at the foot of the ladder. Each ripe acorn that falls from an oak has the inherent capacity to develop into an oak, but not each finds the same conditions for development. Some may grow, a few may develop into trees, but the majority will enter into decomposition to furnish new material out of which new forms may be developed. The highest truth in its fullness is not known to a man in the mortal form. Those that have attained to a state of perfect consciousness of absolute truth require no form to hold it. They belong to a formless tribe. They could not be one with a universal principle if they were tied by the chain of personality. A mind expanded so that the prison house of flesh can hold it no more will require that prison house no longer. Form is only required to shelter the spirit in the infancy of his development as long as he has not attained full power. Having attained the knowledge of evil and the power to control it, and having by the realization of the truth eaten from the tree of life and attained immortality, he can protect himself by his own power and requires his clothes of flesh no longer. Imperfectly developed man, unless he has become very much degraded, feels intuitively that which is true. The scientist who reasons from the plane of sensual perceptions is farthest from a recognition of the truth, because he mistakes the illusions produced by his senses for the reality, and repulses the revelations of his own intuition. The philosopher, unable to see the truth, attempts to grasp it with his intellect, and may approach it to a certain extent. But he in whom the truth has attained the state of self-consciousness knows the truth by direct perception. He is one with it and cannot err. Such a state is incomprehensible for the majority of men, to scientists and philosophers as well as to the ignorant, and yet men have existed and exist today who have attained that state. They are the true theosophists, but not everyone is a theosophist who goes by that name, nor is everyone a Christ who is called a Christian. But a true theosophist and a true Christian, or Mahatma, are one and the same, because both are human forms in which the universal spiritual soul has attained a state of self-consciousness. The terms Christian or theosophist, like so many other terms of a similar kind, have almost entirely lost their true meaning. A Christian nowadays means a person whose name is inscribed in the register of some so-called Christian church and performs the ceremonies prescribed by that social organization. But a real Christian is something entirely different from a merely external one. The first Christians were a secret organization, a school of occultists, who adopted certain symbols and signs in which to represent the truths they knew and thus to communicate them to each other while hiding them from the eyes of the ignorant. A real theosophist is not a dreamer, but a most practical person. By purity of life he perceives the power to perceive higher truths than average man is able to see. As the truth is only one, 
men in all countries in whom the truth has become self-conscious, have the same perception. This explains why the revelations of all prophets are identical with each other, provided they have obtained the same power. The truths revealed by a Jacob Burma or Paracelsus in Germany are essentially the same as those revealed by the Tibetan Mahatmas. They only differ in extent and in mode of expression. An ecstatic Christian saint in England or France would tell the same tale as an ecstatic Brahmin in India or an ecstatic Indian in America, because all three being in the same state would exactly see the same thing. The truth is there, visible to all who are able to perceive it, but each will describe what he sees according to his mode of thinking and in his own fashion. If, as the ignorant believe, all the visions of saints and lamas, sannyasins, and dervishes were only the result of hallucinations and fancies, not two of them, having never heard of each other, would have the same vision. A tree will be a tree to all who are able to see it. And if their sight is clear, no preconceived opinions will change it into something else. A truth will be seen as a truth by all who are able to see it, and no preconceived opinions will alter it or change it into a lie. To know the whole truth is to know everything that exists. To love the truth above all is to become united with the consciousness of all. To be able to express the truth in its fullness is to possess universal power. But to be one with immortal truth is to be forever immortal. The perception of the truth rests in the equilibrium of the intellect and the emotions. As long as the mind has not awakened to a state of direct recognition of the truth, it will only see the shadow of its presence and hear the indistinct whispering of its voice. The sound of that voice may be drowned in the turmoil of the intellectual workshop. Its light may be obscured by the storms of the emotions. To understand that voice and to behold that light distinctly and without any foreign admixture, heart and head should act harmoniously together. To perceive the truth, purity of heart, and strength of mind should go hand in hand, and it is therefore taught that men must become like children before they can enter the sphere of truth. Head and heart, if supported by reason, are as one. But if they act against each other, they form the absurd two that produces illusions. The emotional maniac is only guided by his heart. The intellectual fool only listens to the dictates of his head. He lives, so to say, in his head and neglects his heart. But neither the revelry of the emotions nor the intellectual fanaticism discloses the truth. Only in the stillness that follows the storm, when the harmony of both is restored, will the truth be discovered. A man who only follows the dictates of his emotions, resembles one who, in ascending a mountain peak, becomes dizzy, and, losing his power to control himself, falls over a precipice. A man who is only guided by his sensual perceptions, influencing his intellect, is easily lost in the whirlpool of multifarious illusions. He is like a person on an island in the ocean examining a drop of water taken from the ocean and being blind to the existence of the ocean from which that drop has been taken. But if heart and head are attuned to the divine harmonies of the invisible realm of nature, then 
will the truth reveal itself to man, and in him will the highest ideal see its own image reflected. We sometimes hear some people boast that they are controlled by their intellect, but no one boasts that he is controlled by his emotions. The former are as much in error as the latter. For a free man is not controlled by either of the two, he is his own master. By the power of his will and reason he controls the intellectual workings of his brain no less than the emotions of his heart, and only such a person is wise. His heart and brain are not themselves. They are instruments which have been lent to us by nature. They should not govern us, but we should govern them, and use them according to the dictates of the universal law, whose words we can only hear when we are free from the bonds of the animal self. Material man, entombed in his chrysalis of clay, can only feel but not see. The rays that radiate from the sphere of infinite truth. But if he bids his emotions be still, and commands his intellect be not deluded, he may stretch his feelers into the realm of the spirit and perceive the light of truth. His heart should be used as a touchstone to examine the conclusions arrived at by the brain, and the brain should be employed like scales to weigh the decisions of his heart. But when his self-knowledge has been awakened, there will be no more difference of opinion between the head and the heart. The perceptions of the one will be in harmony with the aspirations of the latter. The one will see, and the other will feel the truth. Then will the lower ideals vanish before the light of truth. For truth is a jealous goddess, and suffers no other gods beside her. Man is usually guided only by his intellect, Woman is often guided only by her emotions. To reason from external appearances has become a necessity to men in consequence of their material organization, which, like a shell, surrounds the soul of men and women, in which alone rests the power of sensation and perception. But if the innermost man, the true spirit, sleeping in every mortal, awakens to life, he emits a light that penetrates through the veil of matter and illuminates the soul. If the germ of divinity hidden in the center of the soul is permitted to awaken, it emits a spiritual light, which reaches from man to the stars and to the utmost limits of space, and by the help of that divine light he may perceive and penetrate into the deepest mysteries of the universe. And now, a word from our sponsors. While we cannot control whether any ads get put in the spots allocated, we thank you for listening to those that do since they help keep this project alive. You can also get ad-free content and bonus content and videos and a private webpage by subscribing exclusively to magicwithoutfears.com for only a couple dollars a week or $6 a month or 50 for the year. It helps a lot, plus you get emails about other exclusive things. Thank you very much. Those who are able to know the truth by direct perception do not need to be informed of it by the reading of books. The whole of the visible and invisible realm lies open before them, like a book in whose pages they may read the whole history of the world. They know all the forms of life because they are one with the source of life from which all forms were born. They need not study letters because the word itself is living in them. 
they may be the instruments through whom eternal wisdom reveals itself to those who are entombed in matter. But in that case, it is not the teacher revealing the truth, but the truth itself revealing itself through him. These are the only illuminates and theosophists that have any real existence, not those who merely imagine to be what they are really not. How pitiful must appear to the enlightened the war of opinions raging among those whom humanity believes to be the lights of knowledge and wisdom. How insignificantly small appear those lights before the sun of truth. What appears as a light to the ignorant appears to the illuminated seer as a source of darkness and smoke. And the wisdom of the world becomes foolishness before the eyes of truth. The oyster in its shell may believe to be at the pinnacle of perfection, and that there is no higher existence than that which it enjoys in the ocean bed. The scientist, proud of the discoveries of his department of science, is frequently found to be swelled with vanity, knowing little how little he knows. Many of the representatives of modern science forget that the greatest inventions have been made not by the professed guardians of science, but by men upon whom they looked with contempt and that many useful inventions were introduced not with the assistance, but in spite of the opposition of the learned. It may be disagreeable to call up unpleasant memories, but we cannot close our eyes to the fact that the inventors of railroads, steamships, and telegraphs have been ridiculed by professors of science, that men of science have laughed at the belief in the rotundity of the earth, that some of the legitimate keepers of the truth have often betrayed their trust, and that especially the followers of the medical profession as a class have often been prominent on account of their misunderstandings of the laws of nature and of their opposition to truth whenever it conflicted with their preconceived opinions. Many useful discoveries have been made through the power of intuition, assisted by a strong intellect, some seem to have been made by the aid of that intuition which comes from the devil, and their results are still a curse to mankind. For centuries the learned professions have been thriving on human suffering, and many of their followers, mistaking the low for the high, have dethroned the god of humanity and worshipped the fetish of self in its place. The fear of an illusory devil external to man has served to swell the money bags of Brahmins and priests, while the real internal devils residing in the animal nature of man were allowed to grow. For centuries many of the appointed servants of the Supreme have only served the golden calf, residing in their animal nature, feeding their followers with false hopes of immortality and speculating on the selfish propensities of men to obtain material profits for their own selves. Those to whom humanity looks for protection against bodily ills, and who therefore more than anybody else should understand the real constitution of man, usually experiment with the physical form to seek the cause of disease, being ignorant of the fact that the form is the expression of life, the product of the soul, and that external effects cannot be effectually changed without changing the internal causes. Many of them refusing to believe in soul, seek the cause of diseases, in its external expression where it does not exist. Diseases are the necessary results of disobedience to the laws of nature. They are the consequences of sins that cannot be forgiven, but must be atoned 
for by acting again in accordance with natural laws. In vain will the ignorant ask the guardians of health for their assistance to cheat the laws of nature out of its dues. Physicians may restore health by restoring the supremacy of the law, but as long as they know only an infinitesimal part of the law, they can only cure an infinitesimal part of the diseases afflicting mankind. They can often only suppress the manifestation of one disease by calling another and more serious one into existence. Note C. C. L. Hunt, quote, vaccination, in this footnote. Also note that Fran, uh, Franz Hartmann was a medical doctor over a hundred years ago. So, yeah, keep that in mind. In vain will such investigators seek for the cause for epidemic diseases in places where such causes may be propagated, but where they are not created. The soul of the earth in which such causes reside cannot be seen with microscopes. It can only be recognized by a man whose spiritual perceptions have been awakened by the awakening into consciousness of his interior self. A true conception of the nature of man will lead to the comprehension of the fact that man being as a microcosm, the true image, reflection, and representative of the macrocosm of nature. Nature has the same organization as man, although not the same external form. Having the same organs and functions and being ruled by the same laws, the organism of nature is liable to experience diseases similar to those experienced by the organism of man. Nature has her dropsical swellings, her nervous tremblings, her paralytic affections by which civilized countries turn into deserts her inflammatory affections, her rheumatic contractions, spells of heat and cold, eruptions and earthquakes. If our physicians knew the nature of man, they would also know the organization of nature as a whole and understand more about the origin of epidemic diseases of which they now know merely the external effects. What does modern medical science know of the constitution of man whose life and safety is made to depend upon that knowledge? It knows the form of the body, the arrangement of muscles and bones and organs, and it calls these constituent parts by names which it invented for the purpose of distinction. Having no supersensual perceptions, it does not know the soul of man, but believes that his body is the essential man. If its eyes were open, it would see that this visible body is only the material kernel of the immaterial but nevertheless substantial real man whose soul essence radiates far into space and whose spirit is without limits. They would know that in the life principle in whose existence they do not believe resides sensation, perception, consciousness in all the causes that produce the growth of the form. Laboring under their fatal mistake, they attempt to cure that which is not sick while the real patient is unknown to them. Under such circumstances, it is not surprising that the most enlightened physicians of our time have expressed the opinion that our present system of medicine is rather a curse than a blessing to mankind, and that our drugs and medicines do vastly more harm than good, because they are continually misapplied. This is an assertion which has often been made by their own most prominent leaders. The ideal physician of the future 
is he who knows the true constitution of man and who is not led by elusive external appearances, but has developed his interior powers of perception to enable him to examine into the hidden causes of all external effects. To him the acquisitions of material science are not the guides, but only the assistants. His guide will be his knowledge and not his belief, and his knowledge will endow him with faith, which is a power acting upon that part of man that cannot be reached by the administration of drugs. If our medical students were to apply a part of the time which they employ to the study of certain external sciences, which are practically useless to them for the development of their interior perception, they would become able to see certain processes within the organism of man, which are at present to them a mere matter of speculation, and which are not discoverable by any physical means. But even the modern physician acts wiser than he knows. He may say that he does not believe in faith, and yet it is only faith that upholds him and by which he exists, because if men had no faith in him, they would not employ him, and if his patients did not believe that he could benefit them, they would not follow his directions. A physician without intuition, having no faith in himself, and in whom no one else has any faith, is perfectly useless as a physician, no matter how much he may have learned in schools. There is nothing whatever that can be accomplished without the power of faith, and there is no faith possible without knowledge. We can only accomplish that of which we are confident that we can accomplish it, and we can only be truly confident if we know by experience we have the power to do it. What does popular science know about mind? According to the useful definition, mind is the intellectual power in man. And as by man she means a visible form, this definition makes of mind something confined within that visible form. But if this conception were true, there could be no transmission of thought to a distance. If no mind substance did exist outside the visible form, there could be no transmission of thought from one such form to another. No sound can be heard in a space from which the air has been exhausted, and no thought can travel from one individual to another without a corresponding material existing between them to act as a conductor. But the possibility of thought transference is now an almost universally admitted fact. Its truth has been perceived long ago by children who make practical use of it in some of their games. Moreover, anyone who doubts its possibility has it in his power to convince himself by either impressing his thoughts slightly upon others or, if he is of a receptive nature, by letting others impress their thought upon him. It must, therefore, be obvious even to the superficial observer that popular science in regard to this fundamental doctrine has not yet arrived at the truth. Her logical deductions cannot be true as long as the premises from which she reasons are false and her opinions in regard to the powers possessed by man cannot be perfect as long as she does not know the essential nature of man. How infinitely more grand and how much more reasonable is the conception of ancient science according to whose doctrines everything that exists is an expression of the thoughts of the universal mind pervading the infinity of space. This conception makes mind a power in the realm of infinity 
acting through living and intelligent instruments, and of man, an intellectual power, an expression of the universal mind, able to receive, reflect, and modify the thoughts of the latter, like a diamond that becomes self-luminous through the influence of the sun. There is no reason why we should believe that an intelligent mind can exist only in a form which is visible and tangible to the external senses of man. There may be, for all we know, untold millions of intelligent or semi-intelligent beings in the universe whose forms are constituted differently from ours, who live on another plane of existence than ours, and who are therefore invisible to our physical senses, but who nevertheless have a mind and may be perceived by the superior power of perception of the awakened spirit. Nor is their existence a matter of mere speculation, for they may be perceived by those who have the power of interior perception whenever they enter the sphere of the mind. All we know of external objects is the images which they produce in the sphere of our mind. Astral or spiritual beings produce no reflection upon the retina, but their presence may be felt when they enter the mental sphere of the observer, and they may be perceived with the eye of the soul. The ideal scientist of the future, having attained the power of spiritual perception, will recognize this truth. But when this time arrives, scientific opinions will cease to be mere beliefs, and knowledge will take their place. The common utilitarianism of our age is the result of a general mixed conception of the true nature of man and of that which is really useful and worthy of our attention. If we believe that the object of life is simply to render our material self satisfied and to keep it in comfort, and that material comfort confers the highest state of possible happiness, we mistake the low for the high and an illusion for the truth. Our material mode of life is a consequence of the material constitution of our bodies. We are worms of earth, because we cling with all our aspirations to earth. If we can enter upon a path of evolution by which we become less material and more ethereal, a very different order of civilization would be established. Things which now appear indispensable and necessary would cease to be useful, if we could transfer our consciousness with the velocity of thought from one part of the globe to another, the present mode of communication and transportation would no longer be required. The deeper we sink into matter, the more material means for comfort will be needed. The essential and powerful God in man is not material. In the usual acceptation of this term, and independent of the restrictions laid upon matter, what are the real necessities of life? The answer to this question depends entirely on what we imagine to be necessary. Railways, steamers, electric lights, etc. are now a necessity to us, and yet millions of people have lived long and happy knowing nothing about them. To one man a dozen palaces may appear to be an indispensable necessity, to another a carriage, another a pipe, or a bottle of whiskey. But all such necessities are only such as man himself has created. They make the state in which man is now agreeable to him, and tempt him to remain in that state and to desire for nothing higher. They may even hinder his development instead of advancing it. If we would rise into a higher state in which we would no longer require such things, they would cease to be a necessity and 
even become undesirable and useless, but it is the craving and the wasting of thought for the augmentation of the pleasures of the lower life which prevent man to enter the higher one. To raise the evanescent man to a state of perfection enjoyed by the permanent ideal man is the great object of life, the arcanum that cannot be learned in books. It is the great secret that may be understood by a child, but will forever be incomprehensible to him who, living entirely in the realm of sensual perceptions, has no power to grasp it. The attainment of that which is the highest is the magnum opus, the great work, of which the alchemists said that thousands of years may be required to perform, but that it may be accomplished in a moment, even by a woman while engaged in spinning. They looked upon the human mind as being a great alembic, in which the contending forces of the emotions may be purified by the heat of holy aspirations and by a supreme love of truth. They gave instructions how the soul of mortal man may be sublimated and purified from earthly attractions, and its immortal parts be made living and free. The purified elements were made to ascend to the supreme source of law, and ascended again in showers of snowy whiteness, visible to all, because they rendered every act of life holy and pure. They taught how the base metals, meaning the animal energies in man, could be transformed into the pure gold of true spirituality, and how, by attaining spiritual life, allegorically represented under the elixir of life, souls could have their youth and innocence restored and be rendered immortal. Their truths shared the fate of other truths. They were misunderstood and rejected by the ignorant, who continually clamor for truth and reject it when it is offered, because, being blind, they are unable to see it. Their science is known only to those who are able to grasp it. Theology and masonry have, each in its own manner, continued the teachings of the alchemists, and fortunate is the mason or the priest who understands that which he teaches. But of such true disciples there are only few. The systems in which the old truths have been embodied are still in existence, but the cold hands of sensualism and materialism have been laid upon the outward forms, and from the interior the spirit has fled. Doctors and priests see only the outward form, and few can see the hidden mystery that called these forms into existence. The key to the inner sanctuary has been lost by those that were entrusted with its keeping, and the true password has not been rediscovered by the followers of Hiram Abif. The riddle of the Egyptian Sphinx still waits for a solution and will be revealed to none unless he becomes strong enough to discover it himself. But the truth still lives. It resides on the top of a mountain called Faith into the Eternal Law of Good. It shines deep into the interior world of man and sends its divine influence down into the valleys and wherever the doors and windows are open to receive it, there will it dispel the darkness, rendering men and women conscious of their own godlike attributes and guiding them on the road to perfection until, when all their struggles have ceased and the law has been restored, they will find permanent happiness and the realization of the highest universal ideal. 
Hermetic Science Enterprises is a publishing company based in Scotland, UK, that specializes in Western esoteric printed literature as well as educational videos. With various imprints under its belt, its roster consists of grimoire tradition literature, alchemical works, Golden Dawn tradition books, and the several texts and videos originally belonging to the philosophers of nature. Besides its downloadable videos and standard hardcover edition books, Hermetic Science Enterprises also produces beautiful and precious limited fine edition books that are true pieces of art. For more information to order any of its products, please visit www.hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk that's hermeticscienceenterprises.co.uk. And as a lot of you know, I've uh, talked with the publisher Lenny on the podcast before, including a six-hour epic uh, extended version on the Patreon, and uh, seen the fine edition of his new grimoire of Scott's Discovery of Witchcraft, which is only available for purchase up to 50 limited copies uh, till the end of May, I believe. So check it out now. HermeticScienceEnterprises.co.uk